everyone and welcome back. It is 2022 and I am very pleased to once again bring you the Chief Librarian Podcast and I am still your Chief Librarian, Captain Morgan. Thank you very much for joining me today and I am very happy to be back. As you all are aware, we took a brief break from the show so that I could move and experience the holidays in December of 2021. Well, now I have returned and it was an experience uh, <laughs> uh, still getting settled into the new place to one extent or another. There's some renovation work that needs to be done in the basement that I'm still working on. We got moved in and then about a week after our entire family came down sick with a lovely persistent cold that has to this day not completely escaped us. Thankfully, we managed to dodge the COVID bullet, but still managed to catch that lovely winter seasonal cold. It is very exciting for me, though, to finally feel like I can get back out here and record and talk about stuff. And while all of my painting and hobby projects have been put on hold while we've been working on painting the house and getting things ready, I have filled my time instead doing things that a chief librarian should do, which is reading a lot of books. On top of that, I've been assisting with the prep for the Las Vegas Open, which is coming up in the end of January. It's just a little over a week away here at the time of recording this. So if you are attending and you are part of the 40K Championships, you will likely see me walking around doing my judge thing, answering questions, and generally, you know, making people nervous, I'm sure. So feel free to stop me and say hello if you see me walking around, unless I'm urgently helping someone who's having a crisis at the table. And I don't mean like towel crisis suits, though there might be some crisis suits on the table. I guess we'll see. But so far as today's show is concerned, I'm very excited to be able to talk to you a little bit about some 40k mysteries. We'll be talking about some things like two unnamed slash missing Primarchs, where the Loyalist Primarchs have gone, missing Chaos Gods, Constantin Valdor, ancient Xenos races, the Black Library, and more. These are some of the things in the Warhammer universe that are left deliberately vague, that are there to kind of tease us and at the same time inspire us to create our own fantasies within the universe. So we will be briefly discussing many of these ideas, and depending on how things go, some of them might need to get split off into other episodes or, or get a greater focus in another episode. For the second segment, we have a discussion about creating narrative gaming events, and we break down what makes a cultivated narrative game an event different than just a standard campaign or a league or the sort of thing what is the sort of thing that people value enough to go and pay money and travel to conventions and experience? And to discuss this with me, I've brought on some of the organizers of what I think are some of the very best narrative gaming experience smiths in gaming right now. And that's the, the 30K team for the Adepticon Horus Heresy events. These guys, and I've attended their events three times at least, have never failed to provide an excellent gaming experience with wonderful themed terrain, with a living, breathing war map. They have pretty much set the bar for me for what I think makes a narrative experience worth traveling for. So I'm very excited that they agreed to join me to talk about how they build events, 
what their events are, some of the features that they they learn, some of the feedback they receive from players, and some of the sort of the the jokes that come up come about year after year as you are running events and as players catch you with unexpected surprises. So you should look forward to that part of the segment. I, I think that, you know, as we talk about narrative, and I certainly have a lot of books and things that I want to talk about in the coming months, and also some more of the Why I Love episodes, playing out our fantasies in this fictional universe is one of the most enjoyable things that we can do, allowing us to step in and insert ourselves and influence, at least in a small way, the outcome of events. So with that in mind and out of the way, I am happy to step aside and get us going as we prepare to once again enter the Librarius. Welcome back, everyone. I'm very happy to talk to you about some very interesting subjects and we're going to be brushing on quite a bit in this segment because some of these could certainly spawn entire episodes on their own. And I'm sure that if you were to look around the YouTube verse or any of the wikis, you could get lost in looking at some of the different information that's available about some of these subjects. But I felt the need to talk a little bit about some of the mysteries of Warhammer 40k and also talk about not only the mysteries themselves, but why having the mysteries enriches the setting. So before we start getting into kind of the, the, the storytelling ethos behind having an unsolved mystery in your fiction or having a tease or what, whatever it may be, what role that fills in the creative process of a reader and an enjoyer of a medium, let's go over a couple of the things in the universe that are teases, mysteries, and constant themes of frustration for fans who just sometimes we just want the answers. So I am a Space Marine fanboy, and believe me, I know that there is a quote-unquote mystery that you are waiting for me to talk about. But before I get into that and completely just blow the episode up talking about all of it, I want to talk about some of the other mysteries that exist in Warhammer before I get to the very obvious ones. So to start us off, let's talk a little bit about the Chaos Gods. And of course, we have the big four, right? When we're talking about Chaos, it's usually in the realms of Korn, Slanesh, Nurgle, and Zinch. Those are the Chaos Gods, and that's what we understand that Chaos to be. However, one of the things that is left kind of mysterious is what other chaos entities and godlike things could exist within the warp. And there are things that we have that exist in 40k modern lore that provide hints to that, but they're usually so obscure and fuzzed out that we never really get any hard details about them. There are hints and rumors that the eight-pointed star of chaos represents more than just four aspects of the warp. The first example of this that comes up is a renegade chaos god known as Malice, though it has also gone by another name, 
Malal. And considering that the domains of the four chaos gods cover a wide range of, let's call it, uh, folly, madness, suffering, lust for power, violence, lasciviousness, and excess, malice covers something that's a little bit more psychologically developed, I think, than some of these other ones. Described as a being that feeds off of disorder itself, sort of anarchy, that reigns in terror, malice fits a more nihilistic role in the pantheon. Now, I would say chaos in general is very nihilistic. However, malice, or malal in specific, isn't just an enemy to the living beings of the material plane, but also feeds off of the disunity and the power of the other chaos gods. So malice or malal, I'll call them either as I'm discussing, has its own sacred number, like all of the different gods have their own sort of sacred number. Corn is eight, I believe. Uh, Zinch is nine. Nurgle is seven, etc., etc. Malal is 11, which sets it aside from the other chaos gods. And this also begs a question. Being the only god that has a double-digit number, does each digit, does each number represent a different chaos god? And we have the eight-pointed star, of course, but an eight-pointed star with only four primary gods, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, does it? And the depths of emotion and human suffering and, I suppose, you know, the theoretical idea of the different aspects of a grimdark universe's worst traits certainly could go beyond the big four. And in that sense, malice, or malal, covers a nihilistic domain and an anarchist sort of reign. And there's a reason that this chaos god in particular doesn't really make that much of a presence within the Warhammer fantasy and Warhammer 40k universes. And it is heavily implied that Malice, in this sort of background state right now, wasn't always there. And while it's not confirmed, again, this is mysterious stuff, there is either the option that Malice ejected itself from the heart of chaos and the peak of power or was pushed out by the other chaos powers. And this is where things get a little bit timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly because technically chaos exists outside of time. They experience all time at the same time, if that makes any sense. And it's one of those things that just is, I think, so difficult for us to conceive of that it becomes a, well, it's too complicated for you to understand it so we can just say whatever works that Slanesh has always existed, but is also the youngest god and only existed in the material plane after a certain time frame, but always existed in the warp. Like that kind of stuff gets kind of wibbly wobbly and weird. And the idea though, that there is some kind of a power scale or timeline within the warp where different chaos deities exist and have domains of greater or lesser power. That's something that gets kind of unspoken when we talk about chaos and the chaos gods as a faction, there's just not a whole lot to it. And it's quite a big tease because that raises so many questions. Who would be the other four points on the eight-pointed star? Was it once an 11-pointed star, right? So another notable example of a hint at a chaos deity of some kind that exists outside of the normal pantheon of four 
is the Black Blade of Antwerp, which is wielded by Castellan Crow of the Grey Knights. And this is another example of the sort of thing where there's a lot of mystery built into it, a lot of possibility, and so many of these are likely intentional dead ends. Just it, it, It's a mystery that exists there to frustrate you with its possibilities. Now, the, the battlefield mystery of the blade, I'm not going to get too much into itself, just because that's its own sort of, well, so-and-so fought so-and-so in this war, and the prognosticars were worried that it would return, and then it did return, and then Crow, he can he can do the thing. You know, there's, there's a lot to it. And if I did a sort of a bio on Crow as a character, I'd probably get a little bit more into it. But the fact of the matter is that this blade is likely, likely, I say, the piece of a either deceased or dispersed chaos god that no longer fits into the regular pantheon. It has relationships with things in the existing pantheon. So the big four, right? It has a rivalry with the skull taker, for example. And these sorts of rivalries are not really uncommon among demons, but they usually are related to the shard of whatever greater being these demons come from. We know that the blood crushers and the blood thirsters and all the blood things come from corn. And we know that Zinch has all the horrors and we know that the Daemonets belong to Slanesh and the Nurglings belong to Nurgle. And for whatever their personalities are, they are subject to the greater power that they are a shard of. And while they all compete against each other and even within their own faction for the favor of the greater being, the Black Blade of Antwerp doesn't align, at least so far as we've been told, with any of the existing Big Four powers. And there isn't really any hint that it belongs to Malice either. So the question is, is this a piece of a dead god? Is it a, a free entity, a greater demon of some kind that manifested on its own power and then was brought into the material plane? In any event, it implies that there are powers in the warp that exist outside of the chaos gods and, of course, the emperor, because the emperor is manifesting things in the warp and creating his own sort of, I guess you could call them demons or manifestations. I don't know what you want to call Celestine, but it's certainly, but an emperor demon would probably not be too far off a description. A demon of order. And that brings me to another subject, because there's, there are more concepts than just the ones represented by the Chaos Gods that can manifest power within the warp. And this has been kind of one of my sticking points with the warp as a concept, is the fact that if the warp is a reflection of the emotions and the spirits and the actions of the material plane, then there are definitely deities and influences within the warp that represent positive emotions. And 40k being 40k, we never really get to see that because everything has to be grim and dark and there can be no hope and there can be no chaos god of love. It has to be a perversion of love. But as it's talked about in the Darkness and the Blood novel, the, the warp itself is not evil. The warp on its own is not evil. But the chaos gods within the warp and the actions of those living in the real world make the warp more dangerous as they live out their cruelty and the suffering that they experience bleeds out into the immaterium. We know from some of the tales that come from the old Necron lore and the old Eldar lore 
that during the time of the old ones, you know, who were basically the 40k lizard men, the warp was calm. And it wasn't until that great war between the Eldar and the Necrons, or the Necrontier called the War in Heaven, that the violence and the instability of the real world made the warp more dangerous than it had been before. But it makes you wonder, what are the things that could have developed within the warp, or what are the things that have domains within the warp that we don't know about yet? Certainly the idea of god machines has some sort of influence in the warp. In the novel Titan Death, which is book 53 of the Horus Heresy series, that's right, 5-3-53, there is a scene where a princeps of a titan dies, and you experience this princeps basically passing on into the immaterium. And it starts off like a pleasant dream, a dream that this character has had of riding horses over the hills, but quickly the madness of the warp swallows that dream up and she is left exposed and is about to be torn to pieces by the malevolent entities of the warp, which is supposedly the fate of anybody who dies in the Warhammer universe. Now, at the very last second, this idea of the god machine saves her. She's brought into basically a shining, golden, pure light in the form of a giant titan that brings her spirit into safely as it traverses the instability of the warp. So what other gods and things exist in the warp that we haven't, that we haven't touched? And how can we turn that into something as a tool to build our narrative gaming experience around? I had an idea at one point during, I believe it was the 6th or the 7th edition rule set, where chaos demon summoning was a big thing. The idea that you could pretty much infinitely summon an army that would be able to replicate and split and do all this stuff. It was, it was ridiculous. It was something that certainly killed a lot of the fun of the game. But from a creative concept, I started thinking about, well, if this is something that I wanted to do, how would I go about doing it? For me personally, I don't really enjoy doing anything that has to do with the chaos gods. I don't find any of them appealing very much. If I had to pick one so far as an aesthetic, it would probably be corn because corn looks the most demonic to me. It's got all of the things that I associate with demons. You know, it's got the horns and the big teeth and you know the red skin and the bat wings and that sort of thing. And that's always just kind of been demons for me. Probably been influenced a little bit too much by games like uh, Diablo over time. And that's just kind of how I imagine your stereotypical demon. And so far as a theme, you know, Reese uh, from Frontline has often mentioned to me that if he thought that I would fall to a chaos god, it would probably be Zinch because I know things. So from a you know a magic and a and a knowledge perspective, Zinch certainly has that sort of appeal for me. However, the aesthetic of Zinch I just think is awful. I I dislike the the weird vulture aesthetic. It's not really something that I'm excited about painting. So what would I do if I did want to play something that manifested itself from the warp and play demon summoning? Now, this idea I had, I knew was unrealistic. I had the idea, but I certainly didn't have the means or the time or the resources to pull it off. But I thought about creating my own sort of demon army 
that would more or less act as proxies for the, the chaos models, but in a theme that I found more interesting that tied in a little bit more to the ideas that I had of there has to be more to the warp than just suffering. And we know that there's, there's things in the warp that manifest themselves in response to virtue in the Sanguinor, Celestine, to an extent, Celestine is probably more a manifestation of the Emperor's will, which is a tyrannical sense of order. But the Sanguinor, in particular, is a manifestation of all the good deeds of the Blood Angels done over time. Well, what if there was a spirit of honor, a god of honor, or virtue, or decency, or love? What would that look like, and how could I represent that on the tabletop? Now, if you're looking for a very, very deep and difficult hobby project, you could create an army of Nephilim. These could be creatures that you use existing rules for so far as how chaos demons are, and it would be a, a massive project. But think about how cool it would be to carve out your own little section of the warp, your own private piece of hell, I guess you could say, that you made the rules for, that you were the, the deity of and that you were extending your influence into the material plane using. What would that look like? And obviously this would be the sort of project that would be extremely time and labor intensive. You could certainly come up with a hybridization of a bunch of different things that exist within the model ranges of, of Games Workshop themselves, just so that you could play it at their stores if that was something that interested you. Otherwise, you could go very deep down the rabbit hole of designing or creating or cannibalizing a bunch of different miniatures and things into a, a, an army that reflects that sort of manifestation of whatever entity in the warp existed. For me, I would want to do something that represented no, more noble virtues because these virtues I know exist within Warhammer, but there are definitely plenty of negative <laughs> what would you call it, vices that you could create armies and themes based off of that fall outside of the four chaos gods. Malal is anarchy and nihilism. If you didn't want to go with Malal, think of some other vice that, or, or human failing that you could subvert to create an army theme. In the Warhammer Fantasy universe, there was a novel that involved Gotrick Gurnison, and it was sort of his final novel for the end times of the old world, where he has to confront Melikor, the dark, you know, the dark prince, prince of darkness, or prince of shadows, or whatever all of the titles are for that demon of demon prince of chaos undivided, one who received the blessings of all the big four. He was trying to, in that novel, use the power of this gateway to basically ascend himself into godhood, to free himself from the shackles of all of the different chaos gods and create a god of shadows. Now, if you know, shadows and darkness is your theme, Bellicor certainly has a theme that you, could, that you could take advantage of and make an entire army of shadowy demons. And you could even create you know, chaos space rain chapters or in-universe space rain chapters that fit with the ideal or the worship of this entity in the warp. The Sons of Malice are a Chaos Space Marine faction that reportedly worships Malal. And that's something that's canon. 
Why couldn't you do that for yourself? If you're looking to carve your own niche, if you don't find something that exists within Warhammer that you identify with, but you've been curious about starting a faction, then the, the groundwork is laid there for you to do that. And that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about leading up to the very idea of the missing Primarchs and the, the lost legions of the Space Marines. The missing Primarchs are probably the number one frustrating mystery of the Warhammer 40k universe. And they have been hinted at and teased vaguely in so many different places that tracking down a lot of the information or even places where they've already done some of the legwork to track down a bunch of the information on the missing Primarchs has been a real chore. In fact, that's something I've been working on compiling and, and putting together for a couple of months here and there. Now, to take the conversation out of the in-universe question of the missing Primarchs first, I think that it's important to point out the missing Primarchs were originally created as a way for gamers to create their own histories for their Space Marine chapters. Now, I am fairly fortunate that I was able to really connect well with the Blood Angels. I love the Blood Angels. They are far and beyond my favorite faction in probably all of the fiction that I've read. I identify and relate to and enjoy the theme of the Blood Angels more than any other. Right from the very beginning, even though I knew that I liked Warhammer 40k because I played Space Hulk and it just so happened that Blood Angels were the Terminators in that box set that I borrowed from my ex-brother-in-law years and years and years and years ago, I feel very fortunate that I found sort of my place in the universe so far as the Blood Angels are concerned. All of the themes really resonate with me in a powerful way. Not everybody has that. A lot of people want to carve their own slice out of Warhammer. And even within the confines of the Blood Angels and their lore, I've still done a little bit of my own customization where I have my modern 40k, even the Primaris, themed very heavily after the things of the Horus Heresy and the old Blood Angels. My own interpretation of the Third Company and their sort of obsession with the things of the past that were lost and sort of a desire to return to a higher set of older, perhaps abandoned or forgotten ideals, that is in canon within Warhammer 40k. And I recognize that, but that's the story that I wanted to tell with my army. And there were several times where I considered what would it be like if I created my own Space Marine chapter. And when you think about that and you understand that if you want to be able to engage within the lore in a way that feels like it fits, you need to belong to a Primarch. And this works with the Traitor Legions as well. You can have your own warband, but your warband is likely associated with or dominated by a particular Legion. Or perhaps you're like the Black Legion, where it's you just take whoever will come from whatever Legion and you operate on your own within your own set of determined play styles and rules and ideals. But if you don't fit into that one either, and you wanted to have something of your own, the missing Primarchs were there as a way for you to create your own history. And as such, that has put some limitations on the ability of Black Library authors and lore writers for the last 30 years to put some real final definitive details on what happened to the missing Primarchs, 
who they were, what their legions were like, and how all of that went down. But even despite knowing that, we all, to some extent, if we're fans of Space Marines, and let's face it, Space Marines are the adamantium backbone of this franchise, want to know exactly what happened to them, why were they forgotten, and how did that all come about? And so far, we have been teased relentlessly with little hints here and there, and enough to give us what we think might be a reasonably real story about what happened, but ultimately is still vague enough and unsure enough that beyond the little tidbits known, we can't say for certain who they were or what happened to them. So for the uninitiated, how the story goes is that the Emperor created 20 Space Marine Legions, and he had 20 Primarchs who he created before them to fuel his conquest of the galaxy. At some point prior to the Horus Heresy, two of those legions and two of those primarchs were erased from Imperial records, and it was forbidden for anyone to discuss them who had known them, or to say their names, or the names of the legions, or discuss the events at all whatsoever. And it is remarkable to me that despite the... hmm abandonment of the ideals of the Imperium by roughly half of the remaining 18, but despite nine traitor Primarchs having abandoned the ideals of the Imperium, it, to my knowledge, none of them in the time, the 10,000 years since the Great Heresy, have ever uttered the name of the lost Primarchs or their legions. And if any of you know human nature, you understand that if someone says, don't say X to you, X is the first thing that comes to your mind and the first thing that you want to say. So what would compel even the traitor Primarchs who have fully abandoned the ideals of their father to continually obey this prohibition on speaking of the names and circumstances of their lost brothers? That's probably the biggest thing about this mystery that doesn't make any sense because, I mean, I have young kids and boy... And I just had to have a conversation with my son about not doing certain kinds of jokes in school after getting word that I'd be receiving some upset emails from teachers for some inappropriate things said. It's, it's just part of the human experience. Now, the two missing legions are the second legion and the 11th legion. And there's some interesting hints and tidbits as to the nature of these primarchs or at least to the nature of their disappearance, when it might have occurred, and what might have happened to them. So far as the missing Primarchs themselves go, there is a very, very old Reddit post that cites a forum entry from Laurie Golding, who used to be an editor for Black Library, years and years ago, who put down Black Library's official Primark discovery order. Now, that original forum post is gone. I haven't been able to find it. All links to it go to a dead site. But somebody was able to copy it down, and they put it up on Reddit. So I'm going to read the discovery order here for you so you kind of understand when all of these were found. So first up, Horus is the first Primark that was found by the Emperor. And the circumstances of Horus being found, whether he was found on Chthonia or whether he was found somewhere on Terra, is a big sort of 
confused mystery about that. If you read the first Horus Heresy Black Book, then you can sort of get the idea that it's not completely confirmed whether or not he was on Chthonia, though there are notes and sections of Black Library novels that seem to imply that he grew up there. Nevertheless, he was found first by the Emperor. Next up is Lehman Russ. He was the second brother. He was the one who ruined the party for Horus, basically. And nobody crashes a party like Lehman Russ. Let's be real about that. Now, the third says, deleted from Imperial records, which means that one of the missing Primarchs, either the second or the eleventh, was found third, followed by Ferris Manus, then Fulgrim, then Vulcan, then Dorn, then Gilliman, then Magnus, then Sanguinius, then Lionel Johnson, Perturabo, Mortarian, Lorgar, the Khan, Kurz, Angron, Korax, then another missing Primarch, until finally Alpharius is found last. And according to what the people who notated this have said, is that there was a note at the very end that says, please bear in mind that there is a difference between a Primarch being found and a Primarch taking command of their legion. And of course, we know this from some of the stuff in the Black Books. We know that when Sanguinius was found, he spent some time learning war from the Emperor and more specifically from Horus before taking command of the elements of the Ninth Legion that had been gathering over several years to be reunited with their Primarch. So we know that there's a few things there that could indicate that even though one of the missing Primarchs was found third, chances are he wasn't reunited with his legion until some of the other Primarchs have been found and reunited, or however that... It just adds another layer to the mystery here. So big thank you to whoever found that and put it on Reddit. It is in the 40k lore subreddit if you'd like to look for it. Now, so far as the characters of these Primarchs, and so far as their flaws and the nature of the wars that they fought, where we know that Magnus the Red was a psyker and that his, his sons had a sort of genetic problem, that Magnus sacrificed the night to save, and that they were all very psychically gifted, and that was their thing, you know, that's their archetype. We know nothing officially about the archetypes of the 2nd and the 11th legions. And similarly, we know nothing about their conquests, the home planets that they came from, the cultures that they may have been derived from. The, all of that is just left completely blank. The only other stuff that we definitively can say that we know is that prior to the Horus Heresy, they were stricken from the record. And the reasons they were stricken from the record can vary. It's very heavily implied, for example, in... Fear to Tread, for example, when Sanguinius is confiding in Horus his concern over the growing bloodlust of his sons, that he's worried that the Emperor would just scrap them and erase their glory because of, a, of the problem that he found. Now, does that mean that there was a genetic problem within one of the missing legions? Because he sort of implies that that's what happened to one of them, right? Is that there was something wrong with them and they needed to be eliminated? Or could it simply mean that there is a failure within the Legion that is irreparable, that could compromise their ability to wage war, therefore the Emperor will do what he did to the other problem, where they were, they were messed up, they didn't work right, or they failed at war too much. And of course, 
that could only apply to one of the missing legions. Maybe one of the missing legions was corrupt and their gene seed was unstable. And maybe the other one was perfectly fine and had more of a, a moral or a going against the emperor sort of vibe to it. We don't know. It could be either of them. One of the other things that we understand is that there was a very prominent war during the crusade called the Rangdon Xenocides. And this is something that really got more developed as part of the black books in the Horus Heresy series. So if you don't have, and if you haven't read the lore sections of those books, this might be something that you have never heard of. And I certainly recommend looking up information on the Rangdon Xenocides for yourself to see if you can get some information about it. And it is hard to get a hold of some of these books. I'm missing a couple of them from my own collection. I've got book one, and I'm missing two and three, and then I have four through nine. But in the midst of that, in the Space Wolf book, the one that has the, the burning of Prospero, there is a section where it talks about the Space Wolves fighting in the Rangdon Xenocides. And it implies that there were others who were fighting in that as well. Now, I recently just got the most recent black book that had the Dark Angels in it. We know that the Dark Angels were there as well. And we understand that at least one, if not both, of the missing legions and their primarchs were involved in this very large-scale campaign that saw the losses of well over, if not more than, 100,000 space marines. It is said that because of the cost of this war and the amount of rebuilding it took for these legions, this is what allowed Horus's star to rise because he was often involved in campaigns against Xenos on the other side of the galaxy and was having great success. Of course, he wasn't really fighting against these Rangdon Xenos who had a massive stellar empire large enough and powerful enough to challenge the might of several, at least four, full legions of the Emperor's Astartes. Now, one of the implications as a result of some of the losses of this Rangdon Xenocide is that because of the failure or perhaps the death of some of these Primarchs at the hands of the Xenos, where the Space Marines are supposed to be, and their Primarchs even more so, these indomitable heroes who can overcome anything, if a Primarch were to have been killed by a Xenos during this war, the shame of it and the blow to morale that, hey, these guys are actually mortal, could really have an impact on, on the Empire and its perception of the Space Marines and their capabilities. Now, the, the Emperor wanted everyone to believe that the Space Marines were unstoppable, crusade would always go on, that they would reach their inevitable victory. However, if there was an enemy powerful enough to stop, stymie, and cripple one of his Primarchs or Legions, or several of them, then that is the sort of thing that he would totally brush under the rug. The Emperor was very fond of his secrets, after all. So we have the likelihood that there was at least one Legion and this legion was likely a legion that the wolves were unleashed upon at some point due to either a failure or a rebellion or a genetic problem as a reason for this legion to have gone missing. And then there is also the possibility that the legion lost its primarch in a battle 
and that it was essentially just stricken from the record. One of the other things, if you read the Ultramarines version of the Black Book, well, Ultramarines version, well, it's the one with the Ultramarines in it, I believe it's book five, but in that book specifically, it talks about how there was a sudden influx of new recruits to Ultramar, and while it was credited with Gilliman's great empire-building ability, it is also very heavily implied that there may have been some other gene stock that was brought into the Legion at that time, who could perhaps have been the leftovers or the survivors from the Rangdon Xenocides, and that the dissolution of one of the, the missing legions meant that some of these warriors were adopted into Gilliman's Legion, and their gene seed just quietly died out over the course of history. Or perhaps the gene seed was kept alive, and when the legions were split, there are some legions that believe they are of ultramarine stock that just so happen to be related to a different Primarch, a Primarch who they don't know about, a Primarch who very well could be the Primarch of your made-up Space Marine chapter. Hmm. Now we know that when a legion gets split up prior to Gilliman, that the decree is put out, more or less, that all of the assets and the, you know, the, the industrial capabilities of these legion worlds are to be split up. There is a short story where Tylos Rubio, who is one of Malkador's agents, is sent to Ball after Sanguinius and the Blood Angels go missing during the Horus Heresy, and he is sent to Ball to basically deliver the notice to the Blood Angels that okay, you're being disbanded, we don't know where your father is, there really aren't that many of you left, and we need your resources for other stuff, which presumably would have meant the Grey Knights project. And just before this order is executed, and some of the Blood Angels who aren't okay with this decide to do their own thing, news of Sanguinius's return is released, and the order becomes withdrawn. So... The implication in that story, again, because this is just another little thread, right? It's just another little piece of straw to break the mystery camel's back that indicates that this sort of thing has happened before and likely happened on the home worlds of those missing legions, whichever those would have been. There are a ton of little hints that I could just continue to go on and on and on and on about. And I'd actually encourage you, if you have a lot of interest in this, to go and do the search yourself because there's something very gratifying about doing that. I couldn't hope to just go down a list of all of these different sources and things on my own and expect it to be entertaining. But the idea of me going behind this is that just like with that sort of chaos demon custom thing before, you could create your own Space Marine chapter or even if you wanted to play a Crusade-era Legion, you could create a Space Marine Legion. It would certainly be a, a very hard creative exercise, and the onus would be on you to try and find an archetype that hadn't been picked up already. As we have our Salamanders, the kind Forge Masters, we have our Angels, we have our Egyptian Wizards, we have our old-style Calibanite Knights, we have our religious fanatics, we have our Mongol Asian warlords, we have our perfectionists, and we have our street gangers. We have our machine heads, 
and we have our fortification junkies. We have our stealthy boys, we have our 007 spy boys, and we have our angry boys, and we have our nihilistic Conrad Kurz, I hate the world and everything in it, boys. If you don't have something of your own, there is room here for you to create something that builds off of it. And the fact that we don't have these answers is something that should be empowering to people to inspire them to create. And if you wish to do that, the tools exist for you to do that, both in 40K and in 30K. In fact, I mean to prove that it is more accessible now than ever before to create something of your own within the Warhammer universe that fits within the lore that you can call your own little slice of the grimdark. But I will have to leave you with yet another tease as to what that will be. Now, we didn't even get to some of the other stuff that I was going to talk about. I was going to talk about some of the Xenos races, like the Hrud, and some of the other things that have been so common and ubiquitous. Sorry, Xenos players. I'm sure that you're used to being left out at this point. It's not like you're getting a whole bunch of new, like, Tau or Eldar sculpts or anything like that to hold you over over the next little while. But... We will come back to some of the Xenos-related mysteries in another episode. Do you have a favorite 40k mystery anecdote that you love to talk about? The sort of thing that you could just talk your wife's or your husband's ear off about? I would love to know what that is. Please leave a comment with your favorite 40k mystery or your favorite little anecdote or tidbit about the missing Primarchs. Something that perhaps I didn't discuss. And if I find something new that didn't come up in my own research, I may just have something. Thanks for joining me on this segment. I look forward to speaking to you again with the 30K narrative event guys from Adeptica. Cheers. Hey, tough luck tonight, buddy. Yeah, tough new hotness, more like it. <laughs> sure, pal. Same time next week? Sure. See ya. <sighs> what am I going to do about the new hotness? Commando, we need to talk. Ah, Kato Sicarius. No, it is I, Robute Gilliman, and we need to talk about your performance tonight. Aw, oh, come on, Robute. He's playing the new hotness. What can I do? Well, the Codex says to use the terrain to your advantage, not leaving your whole army set up in the open. But, Rabute, the best I can do is this packing styrofoam that came with my dad's TV. Heresy! You can do better than that. Buy some MDF terrain from Frontline Gaming. Frontline Gaming? Isn't that that company run by the guy who sounds like he has strep throat all the time? Hey, bruh, not cool. Silence! Don't get distracted. This is how you forgot to bring in your reserves. But, Rabute, I don't even know what MDF means. It's woodcut with las guns or something. It's not important. It's quality, durable terrain made for all modes of play with different themes like desert, ruined city, industrial, 
Aliens and war. But I hate painting terrain. It's boring. Never fear. Frontline Gaming has painting services as well. You're right, Lord Gilliman. I should order some. But how do I do that? Where do I start? Go to www.frontlinegaming.org to find out more about terrain, miniatures, painting services, hobby articles, and events. Gee, thanks, Rabute. Any more advice for your loyal force, Commander? Not now, Commander. I have to go back and check on Marnius. Last time I was gone this long, the 500 worlds became the 375. Go ahead and check out www.frontlinegaming.org. Tell them the Chief Librarian sent you. Welcome back, everybody, to this special segment of the Chief Librarian Podcast. I am happy to have David Coleman here to talk to you about narrative gaming and narrative game organization, the design, and all of the elements that go into creating a good player experience. David, thank you for joining me. Hey, my pleasure, Chris. I appreciate you reaching out and having me on. Yeah, I mean, when I was thinking of who would I talk to about something like this, the first people that came to mind are the people who create the the best narrative experiences that I've ever had, and that's the Adepticon crew, basically, for Horus Heresy. And while I understand that this is your first year joining that crew, you have a lot of experience doing and organizing events for people. Am I right? Uh uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I have a, a ton, but I definitely know that I do have a fair bit. Um, I've been running my own consecutive event series for Forest Heresy. Uh, you may have heard of it, may not have. It's called the Taking the Phyrix. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've it, heard of that. At this point, I believe six, maybe seven events that have occurred as part of that overarching series. Uh, we started back in 2018 at the Flying Monkey GT. Uh, real big shout out to the crew over there. Uh, they, they're kind of the ones who, who got me started. So uh, if they wouldn't have let me have that space to put the event on, I don't think I'd be where I am now. But after that, we held an event over at the Iron Halo. I've supplied some terrain past for Bug Eater GT. They've got some guys up there that do some really good heresy events. And then we've also hosted at the Renegade Open over in Kansas City, Kansas, Kansas City, Missouri. And yeah, just kind of been all, all over the place in the Midwest. Uh, I was originally located in Western Kansas. Uh, I recently moved, well, more recently moved down here to Texas just before the lockdown started with COVID. And I hadn't really hosted too much down here. Uh, the last few months of last year, we were running a monthly event down at Sci-Fi Factory in Keller, kind of the Fort Worth area. And we've been having a good turnout there, but obviously when the holiday season kicks in, you get lower attendance, other things start to pop up. So we haven't really kicked that back into gear yet uh, here in 2022, uh, primarily because most of my focus is on Adepticon and making sure that we uh, have all of the parts and pieces in place. Uh, I, I tend to have a rather high standard for myself and the events that I run, so I kind of do keep my nose to the grindstone as much as I keep. Definitely. Well, you sent me some pictures of the terrain you've been working on for the event in the pre-show, and obviously a lot of love and care goes into that. And terrain actually makes, I think, a bigger difference in narrative gaming, in creating a scene and creating a, you know, contributing to a story than even in, 
you know, some of the, the more important, I guess you could say, practical aspects of terrain that a lot of people who worry about competitive gaming get so hung up over. What is your experience in, you know, as, as, a, as a terrain master, which I'm comfortable calling you after looking at those pictures, like what is your experience in how the terrain that you make and the terrain that the players play on, like how does that affect their engagement with the event that you're putting on? So to answer your question, I want to harken back to when I was first getting involved in the 40K side of things in the uh, GTs and events. I participated in four or five of them in the couple, two years leading up to me running my own event. And the thing that struck me, uh, I was one of those, you know, I think the majority of players, you go there, you really just want to have a good time, get away for a weekend, have some fun meeting new people, show off what you've got, and then you know, not worry about taking home friends. And the thing that I kind of took away from every event that I went to was that there was this big disparity between the, the again, not, not, I don't want to you know, throw shade at any event because I understand I'm, I'm an organizer myself. You, you've got limited resources. You've got limited time to put into it. But it seemed like the top players were always getting the, the top billing. They were getting the best tables. It's always on you know, the top 25, 50%. And a lot of times, if you're not up there, you're just kind of, playing stuff that may be ramshackled together. It may not really have much of a narrative to it. It could just be a bunch of random pieces they put on the table and said, you know, that that's good enough. It makes sense. And that was one of the things that spurred me on to start doing my own thing. It's just, you know, if if I was to run an event, this is how I would do it. I wouldn't do it this way. And rather than, you know, just sit there and whine, I figured I'd be part of the solution. And that mentality has seemed to be very uh, reciprocated by all the players that are attending our events. And I, I think a lot of people realize with heresy, you're stepping away from that kind of gaming mentality, more to that historical war gaming mentality, uh, very similar to folks that play bolt action or you know, flames of war, things like that, where there's a more meticulous attention to detail in what you're building and how you're playing and the terrain that you play on is really the, the the third player is how somebody described it to me a long time ago. The terrain is always the third player in the game. Because if you have the most immaculately, brilliantly converted and painted up armies, things that would win you golden demons, if you're just playing on a bunch of styrofoam or a bunch of stuff that's you know primed and dry brushed, and it just you know it really detracts from your overall experience on a game-to-game basis. And so that's really my, my focus has always been on providing the best terrain possible. And admittedly, that has caused some issues on some tables because uh, you get a visual in your head of what you want this to look like, how this is going to work. And sometimes you can have this really amazing looking table that once you actually get everything put together and sat out, it's like, oh, the playability on this is very low. And a great example of that. Um, there's a table of terrain I have that is all overhead piping. Uh, they have some gantries and walkways around them. It looks really good. It looks very cinematic. One of the first tables that I painted up and still one of the best to this day. But the problem was, I'm so focused on building the overheads, I never really paid attention to what was going down 
below those overhead pipes, which caused some issues at our first event when we had a jet bike player who <laughs> managed to just jump on top of those pipes throughout the whole event, and everybody else was having some issues getting the models up there if they didn't bring jet packs or you know jet bikes things. So, um, but that that's really the the more nuanced and and very point specific issues. Uh, overall, uh, I've never had anybody tell me they didn't like the terrain. I've never had somebody tell me they wanted less terrain. And I think that really is, is what kind of speaks volumes. Um, outside of that, uh, really the only other thing I would mention is that I've noticed from the events that I've participated in versus the events that I've run, uh, I do try to put a larger emphasis on verticality of surface space, uh, just because that is something that, again, if you're just playing at a game store or you're just, you know, fucking train at your house it's not something you're going to get to experience often where you've got three to four tiers of terrain with gang planks and bridges running back and forth between or maybe you have a bunch of components that are lighting up and maybe spitting out smoke or things like that just the the spectacle of that terrain it, it really helps draw you into the games that you plan and then that can be further accented by giving very mission specific table specific missions to play that you've oriented to that layout or to the transition as things move from round one to round two. For sure. And I, I want to bring up something based on what you said. You were talking about some of the challenges and the playability issues that come with some of these different kinds of terrain, like the pipe situation where somebody had mm -hmm. units that could uh, take advantage of that verticality that you built into it in a way that not many armies could come up with. And I think that one of the things that distinguishes a narrative table from a competitive table is that a competitive table is trying to aim at a balanced battlefield. This idea that both players need to have equal access to a, a, a type A building that is X high and, and Y wide and, and Z thick and has, you know, um, C many windows, you know, there's... There's this idea that the tables need to be balanced, and, and they should to a certain extent in a competitive environment, and that's not throwing shade. It's just a matter of there are tons of historical battles where terrain is the thing that made that battle work for one faction or another. That the, the unfairness of the layout of a terrain is, is part of the story of those battles, and the overcoming of that or the being able to take advantage of that plays into the this sort of generalship idea. Now, I remember in Adepticon Horus Heresy events in the past that there were a bunch of different kinds of tables that were assigned to, to different players. And the you, know, you didn't know necessarily which table you might pull because there was a bunch of different planets that were assigned and there's a huge battle map. I'll try and find some of my old pictures of it, but there was a huge battle map where you would basically fight over a world, and that would be represented by a particular table number, and that table had themed terrain that did specifically design things to represent the character of that planet. And some armies were going to do better than others. So as a general, you know, whoever was in charge of the loyalist side or whoever was in charge of the heretic side wanted to make sure that whoever went to that place had an army that could succeed there. And the ones who didn't think about it, 
you know, maybe they lucked out and just had somebody who could who could make it work, or you know, whose individual generalship on the battle, you know, the ability to make those choices to pick their targets and a little bit of luck of the dice could actually make it work. But there were plenty of situations where if you pick the wrong army for the wrong table, the terrain turned against you. And there's something that adds to the the idea that you're playing through an experience and that you're using what's in front of you as opposed to the idea of, well, everything needs to be balanced. That makes it more immersive to me. Does that make sense? Uh, oh, absolutely, 100%. And uh, one of the things that you touched on is, it reminds me, there's a boilerplate disclosure excuse me, disclosure I always try to include in my event packs. And that is that the terrain that you will be playing on is vast and varied. You will have tables that are very suited for your forces. You will also have tables that are absolutely the diametrically opposed to your forces. So it, it's something to keep in mind when you're building your list. Um, the more specific example I'll give people is you know, there's going to be some tables where there's really not a whole lot of line of sight blocking. It's a cratered, blasted apart battlefield where clearly people have been just running back and forth, getting mowed down, pushing it one way or the other. And then you're also going to have tables where this is like a dense urban sprawl where you can fit some standard sized vehicles, but they clearly weren't meant to carry something like a Titan or something like a super heavy tank, and then everything in between. Definitely, and I think that that adds to a narrative event where it would take away from a competitive event, and it's it's a way that it, as an organizer, you can cater to the tastes of the, of the people who are spending the money to come and to mm -hmm. experience that. And that, I think that's part of what made the Adepticon event special for me in the past, and one of the things that I tried to mimic in some ways, in some of the events that I run, uh, one of the one of the things I'd like to talk about, just from my own experience and uh, kind of a, a narrative crafting experience that I created for a, f a few friends of mine, is there was a there's a store run uh, and owned by a very close friend of mine, and he had some terrain that he wanted showed off that he'd been making that was basically a it was a hybridized a hybridization of a bunch of imperial bunkers, some of the the different fortifications that had been combined in clever ways to make what were essentially little forts. And so we created this very, very long table. And I made a mini map that represented the table with different like bastion sort of uh, plugins on like a planetary empire style that acted as sort of a an overhead snapshot of the battlefield and we had a massive apocalypse game of something like 20,000 points of orcs versus 20,000 points of imperium where the orcs were just coming across this huge no man's land uh, but they were coming across these imperial defenses in huge waves and the goal for them was to take out these you know we'll call them hill forts of imperial defenses and the imperials goals were to take out the the biggest and the baddest orcs that they could and prevent them from taking ground and the the table itself was probably around 18 feet long it was between 16 and 18 feet long and about six feet wide and it was just this long sort of uh 
grinding wheel of how far can the orcs get in the amount of time that we had. And the terrain is part of what m made that scenario come to life because it was the inspiration for it. But there were a lot of little things that helped drive the narrative that I added in there that added to the immersion. One of them was that little battle map so that if somebody were to come over, you know, they're kind of on a huge table like that, you're kind of siloed into your area of it with the other players there. You can see how the general battle is going because it's like you know, one of those old war room battle maps where you've got people receiving information, you know, and, and uh, moving a piece across the map, that sort of a thing. And creating that sort of experience that made it a little bit more than just a let's do a big apocalypse game, guys. Uh, now, for events that you've done in the past, what are some of the little, I guess you could call them little extras that you've done to help add to a, either a, a continuous story or to the immersion of, of a narrative that people are coming to enjoy? So, again, for ours, most of these events I've run have all been part of the same ongoing campaign. And what I found from just my experience and media and talking to other people, a lot, very similar to d, d You have two options, or at least what most people view as two options. You either railroad your players into the story. So you have the story already set in your head, and they're just taking place inside that story. And you just kind of record their efforts, but the overarching story is already set in stone. And then there's the opposite side, where you basically just give them a play, a, you know, a, a sandbox and let them go nuts, play around, do whatever they want. And then you try and, you know, create a enticing and captivating story out of that. And I found the best way to do, at least what's, what's worked for me and what suited my, is that I have, you know, I have an overall idea of this timeline and the main locations where some of the major battles are going to be. So I know where point A is, I know where point C is, but how we get from A to Z and all the other you know, key elements in between is really what's more malleable and up to the interests of the players. One of the first things I did in our first event, well, excuse me, let me take a step back here. Uh, I've broken my events down into two separate types. We have our major events, and then we have what I would consider supplementary incursions and we we've named our events that way so we have like act one of the taking of Phyrix, which is one of the major events and then we have the hadrian incursion that is a subsidiary event that happened between you know that first major point act one and act two and by doing this it does kind of add some grandiose nature to the major events but it also gives us the opportunity to have those subsequent incursions, the smaller events where we can go and let's say I, I, I want to do some train up and some, some event rules, specific stuff for an ice world. Well, there, there's room to have an ice world in the system, but it's not part of that like major track in order to get to you know, the end. So, hey, let's have an incursion where we're going to go have like this interaction on this other world or this other planet that yeah, doesn't necessarily play a major role in the overall campaign, but it is still a battle point. It's something that people can participate in and really have an impact on the overall story. And one of the things we did in our 
first major event, Act One, we had the Imperials coming into the system. They were on the outer edges, and then we were actually playing in three different planets. Now, when the Imperial forces deployed to those planets, turns out it was all a ruse staged by the traitors. They committed a bunch of uh, terrorist acts, a lot of bombings and things, as soon as the Imperials touched down to make it look like the Imperials were attacking, to try and garner favor from the political you know, forces there on each of the planets and within the system. Uh, there's a lot of kind of the geopolitical narrative behind it that I don't think anybody except me is really that interested in. But the way that the event ended, the Loyalists had one planet, the Traitors had another, and the third was basically divided. The third planet was a death world that had some research stations and things there. So later on, if we want, we can go back to those worlds because we know where they were at. We know where, where we left off. And there's some interesting things we can do there. Uh, I have an idea that maybe there's a contagion or some sort of viral plague that's being researched and manipulated on this death world and the traders find out about it. Maybe they've known the whole time and they're in there you know, messing around with it trying to get it weaponized. The loyalists find out and they say, hey, we need to get over here and stop this. Uh, the loyalists also, uh, one of the two planets that, excuse me, the planet that the loyalists had at the end of Act 1 was a shipyard so they were able to retrofit their fleet that took damage coming in system and also basically absorb the non-military commercial vessels, transport vessels, private you know, private fleets, and uh, rapidly set them up to push farther into the system versus the traders. The world that they ended up maintaining control over was a political stronghold. They had a lot of the most powerful elite forces as far as you know, politicians didn't have necessarily strong warriors themselves, but they've got those political ties within the system that give them the advantage to be able to do things that the loyalists, you know, effectively at this point, they're painted as the invading force. They're, they're treated as the aggressors and the traitors have positioned themselves to look like, hey, we're the good guys. You should join us and let us help you and then get out from underneath the anchor's thumb. But uh, more specifically, since uh, you were curious what things we did outside of that uh, to set our events apart, uh, traditionally, uh, terrain, biggest thing, narrative, also a very big thing. And then third is we always try to make sure we have plenty of really nice swag. So if you participate in one of our events, uh, you will get a custom patch, so a Velcro patch uh, with the event logo on it, and we change them from each event to event. Uh, you've also got a, a custom water slide decal sheet with honors that are specific to that event's battles. So if you have some unique units that do something really cool and you want to mark them up that way, you have it. Or say you've, you've got a standard character and you're playing a game and hey, this last guy in the squad survives, drops that melted bomb, and takes out the tank that was you know, holding the objective that you really needed to take or you know, push them out of your, your uh, deployment zone so you can make that last objective point. And you decide, cool, I'm in the main and I want to upgrade him to being surgeon. Maybe you're going to give him a new model, say, you know, hey, he lost his leg, so he's going to get a bionic leg. 
Well, those decals are also something fun that you can throw on to say, hey, this guy is is kind of a battle-hardened vet, and he has the, the scars and the details to show it. Um, but the only other thing with that is we also have custom dog tags that we like to give out that have special effects. They're one-time use effects that you can use at every event that you go to. So if you go to three events, you're going to walk away with three unique dog tags that are good for the rest of that campaign series. Um, the big thing with that is we want to give people more incentive to continuously participate in combat. So every time we have a new major size event, if not just the next event, I'm always trying to do something else that's something that adds to it. Uh, one thing I'm really excited um, Lucas Milans is a fantastic guy in the hobby. He's a good buddy of mine. I know that he's pretty popular and pretty known at the Depticon, at least down here in Texas, for his participation. He hosts his own uh, heresy events. But he and I, uh, we, we discussed some ideas, and I'm going to give him the majority of the credit here because really he was the mastermind who got it done. Um, we've created a custom deck of cards. There's three different uh, decks that we will be using. We originally planned to use them at 2020's Adepticon, but again, since that got canceled, this is kind of going to be the, the big debut. So we are using a points of interest system, similar to what the guys over in Australia have done. But you basically have Spoils of War, which is the largest deck. That gives you one-off things you can do depending on you know whether it affects you. So one for one say is uh, you know you get to re-roll one one roll of your choice uh, per per game. You use it and it goes away. Or hey, you know, you're gonna pick a unit and you're gonna give them stealth for the rest of that turn. Or uh, but you can activate it kind of whenever you want. Um, and there's there's a big multitude of them. The idea there is with the spoils of war. It's something that's fun, it's a one-off deal. It doesn't really imbalance the game it just gives you something fun and tactical you can do and you get those again by going to these points of interest that are placed around the tables there's uh we use a very neon green yellow objective marker with a an exclamation point on it uh to kind of denote that this is something separate from the in-game objectives uh totally optional you don't have to use them if you don't want to but uh, again the first Pile of spoils of war. The second one is actually NPCs. We have a wide range of NPC models that have been painted up. I believe we're actually going to be getting even more from some of the local guys down here that want to support us. And so, again, some of them may be really good, some of them may be uncomfortable. Um, one of my favorites is the Ambots. We have two different versions of the Ambot card, and one is essentially discover this AMBOT and it hasn't been programmed yet or it's not activated. So you can turn it on and it's friendly. Or you may turn the other one where, hey, you just found an AMBOT and security protocols are engaged. So now the unit that discovered that is engaged in combat with an AMBOT. Again, have a lot of different options there. There's some where you have political royal. You're just, they don't really do anything, but you, if you keep them survived until the end of the game, you may get an extra point for your side of the you know, side of the events. But again, nothing that's going to be game-breaking. And one of the things about the events, how we run them, we don't score your games individually. That's something you guys can do. Really, the only thing we care about is which side won for the purposes of the overall campaign. 
But there's no, hey, you won the most games. Hey, you got the most points for your side. Uh, we don't really give out awards or anything like that because uh, we don't want to incentivize people to focus on winning. We want to incentivize people to have that narrative, have that game-to-game experience that you know gives you a story that you can recount to other people. And then uh, the last uh, card pile that we have there, before I forget, is Archaeotech items. So that is one of the, the more rare ones that... It, on a D6, it'd be like rolling a one or a six. You're only going to get one out of six times. But uh, it gives you either an Archaeotech weapon or equips a squad with some kind of special gear that they are essentially equipped with for the rest of the event as long as you're participating. So uh, you may have a tactical squad that suddenly, hey, they managed to hold this objective, and it turns out there's Archaeotech there, and now they have access to special issue ammunition. Or, hey, this sergeant just found uh, an iron halo. So you can add this iron halo stat for a pinball save to the whatever character or squad leader is in the squad that found it. Okay, yeah. I mean, I just kind of let you go off there for a long time because it was all just pure gold. Now I have to try and unpack this gold mine of content you give me. Thanks. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, take your time, man. I got all on it. <laughs> Well, there's a lot of things that I I want to touch on. Uh, I want to start with this idea that comes from like player attrition because I think that's one of the biggest plagues of any sort of organized play, whether it's narrative or competitive, is player attrition. Like, what is going to get people coming back for the next one? And you talked about you know having the dog tags and and creating these sort of in, like game dependent, like attendance dependent incentives, more or less, mm-hmm. that people will get invested enough. It's like, all right, well, the next event is is next month, and I really want to be there because I w- I've got this dog tag or I've got this ability that I'll be able to use, uh, and I want to carry that over and I want to use that. Or, or maybe they just even want to save it and accumulate as many as they can for a you know a, a final battle or or some something. It, it, but it gives them a reason to stay engaged that's more than just like the the sort of, what would you call it? I've experienced this before where it's like the organizer guilt trip where it's like, mm-hmm. well, if you don't come, then we're not going to have like that. That's not a positive feeling. You don't want to feel, you want, don't want to make your players feel like they have to be there. You want them to feel like they want to be there. And a lot of these little mm-hmm. touches that you discussed are things that, that do that. I love the stuff you talked about so far as like the the different cards with the random rewards reminds me of, you know, finding treasure in games like hero quest where it's like, all right, I want to search the room for treasure. You know, maybe you'll get a trap, but maybe you'll get a bunch of gold or a cool new ax or something. And, you know, that adds something that you just don't get in other game types and having a bunch of those little things that indicate, you know, why something is important to the overall campaign or to the narrative itself, as opposed to, you know, just rewarding winners though. I mean, there's, it's gotta be said, there's nothing wrong with winning and and getting invested enough in your faction to win in a narrative event. The way you go about doing that, you know, depending on sort of the social contract of the event, like that's, that's its whole other discussion. We don't necessarily want to encourage people to just play to lose just for the laughs but 
what you incentivize in a narrative event is inevitably going to be different and it should be reflective of the ideals and the ideas that you have for this. So before I you know keep going too far, the next thing I want to kind of poke your brain about has to do with something you said where you talked about it being like D&D where mm-hmm. you, you're, you don't want to railroad people. But another aspect of D&D is, is the role play. And people generally, especially in a narrative event, they want to, to play as a faction that they can either relate to or root for. So are there things that you have done in your events, such as like RPG-style player upgrades or customizations, or things like um, you know grudge matches or rivalries be- that develop between players during the course of a campaign? Like, What are those sort of RPG elements that you have experienced building into events and have they added to or taken away from it? What is your thought on that kind of a thing? Gotcha. So uh, first of all, yes, we did do that with a couple of our events. Um, trying to find the reference material I have. Because I, I save everything that I do to worry about forgetting. Uh, but essentially, we did come up with our own custom system for having a uh, named character of your own, very, very similar in high level concept to what uh, the Mornival Events series has allowed you to do with their custom rules. So you can create unique consoles and praetors, things like that, that you know are not something you reflective in the standard game. So you can have a lot of customization that way. Uh, but ours was a little bit different. It was based on we created a list of actions essentially where if any of these things happened during any of your games your character gains experience for those now just for participating in a game with that character they got experience if they survived they got bonus experience it was one of those where we weren't very restrictive with it we were very permissive with hey we want to throw these points at you and we want you to be able to upgrade your character um, with these unique things. But the way that it worked was you didn't really get a choice. You spent so many points and you got to roll a V6 to figure out what Now, there was a positive side and there was a negative side. If your warlord died in a game, you roll on basically this shame table is the best way I can call it. And it wouldn't usually give you anything negative as far as affecting your stats. But it would do certain things narratively that made sense. So like, hey, um, you just got smoked by this guy. Congratulations, you now have hatred that, you know, Legion and uh, preferred enemy that character specifically. Or, hey, you've lost, you know, again, your warlord died, so you roll on this negative table. Oh, you, know, you are now rolling on the lowest leadership in any squad that he's attached to because people are starting to question his leadership because of his failings and value. And then again, we had some similar things on the other side of the table where, hey, you know, you're proving to be a tactical genius. You get a bonus. You get to add one to uh, your seize the initiative, things like that. So again, nothing over the top. But And you can only ever have two on either side of that table. And that's kind of what we did to prevent people from, you know, Suddenly having, you know, 
regular old Pion that turns into Super Saiyan God Mode Level 4 Goku, <laughs> which even though we, we tried to, you know, refine this and beta test it, we still had that issue happen. Uh, specifically, we had one of our players was playing a Thousand Suns list, and the Thousand Suns Sorcerer characters having all the psychic powers, that wasn't something we took into account. Yeah, they can um, get out of control real fast. Exactly. So that one was already like, you're taking something that's already a Super Saiyan, and now you're you're putting it way over. So, uh, but we use that once or twice, and we haven't really gone back to refine the system yet again, because it, uh, we started prepping for Adepticon, we weren't going to be using it there, and then lockdown hit, so... Um, but in in a perfect world for me, I would love to have my events run in a very GM'd, DM'd style, where we have one or two people that are helping specifically with, say, three or four tables, and they're kind of being the GM. They're kind of DMing what's going on. And that way, we can have certain things in place that the players don't even know about. But when you know things happen and triggered, we can be like, oh, this is going on now. Congratulations. Uh, there's, there's one that I remember on another podcast, and I can't remember. It had to be one of the Australian guys. They basically had a sacrificial altar that they were tracking the number of deaths in that room. And once it got over a certain threshold, suddenly demons started to appear. And I absolutely love that idea because it was tracked across multiple games. They had somebody at that table basically, again, DMing, GMing, walking people through what was going on. And it, it's a unique idea that can be carried across. Now, this is not necessarily something that's going to be at Adepticon. It's also not necessarily something that won't. But I've picked up four or five Noctilith crowns with a very similar idea. But uh, really, that <laughs> I'll, I'll go ahead and just, just spoil it for this one. It's probably not going to happen at Adepticon. I just don't think I have time to do everything to the extent I want. But I have a model that's probably a four, maybe three, four foot tall and proportionately scaled Cthulhu. Uh, it was from a Kickstarter. I managed to snag this model from a local uh, buy-sell-trade event. And the idea that I want is eventually to be able to do something similar where we're tracking the number of you know deaths or things that are going on. And then, hey, there's a chance that these portals are going to start to open up. The more of them that start to activate, the bigger these demons and the warp you know, tomfoolery going on is going to be. And then if all of them activate... We summon in a giant, like, elder, demon, you know, god-looking monster that is going to show up on different tables, and maybe midway through a game, it may phase out of existence on your table and phase into existence in this other part of the planet. Okay, well, I was going to ask as a follow-up question, what are the things that you can do as an organizer to keep it fun for you since you don't get to play? But I think you kind of just answered that. Um <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest. Um, I'm very selfish as an organizer. Very like at most of my events, I will try to get people's emails so I can send them out a survey afterwards. And we try and keep it short, maybe five, six questions or less, and just ask very pointed 
questions, get some very specific commentary, usually on things that we've changed that, you know, have always been popular and we changed it and tweaked it in a certain way. We want to see how people liked it better or less. And then also sometimes if there's a general feedback that we're getting from people at the event, we always take take care to note that and then make sure that it is documented and we, we follow up with them. Because like, like you said, it, it's not fun for anybody when players feel obligated to come and participate. Uh, but it, it's really healthy when players are reaching out to you, almost chomping at the bit asking, hey, when's the next event going to be, or what's the plan for the next event? And so far, I feel very honored because every person that's attended, we've always gotten positive feedback. I don't think anybody's ever had a bad time. Again, because we, at the end of the day, we always try and focus on those three core principles, the best terrain at the event, the best narrative around, and then we always try and have some really good swag that way. Even if you come and you have a terrible time and you don't enjoy the games, at least you feel like you've made your money's worth out of it. Um, because that's the worst thing is when you go and you spend you know, 50 bucks to go to an event and the terrain's not very good and you know, the narrative's kind of subpar and you're just not having a good time and you don't even walk away with anything. And again, I want to give a shout out. We've been very fortunate uh, to have a lot of success with sponsorship from different folks in the industry. Uh, we've had um, a lot of sponsorships from Death Ray Designs, Game Mat EU. Uh, those guys have some fantastic table mats and some awesome terrain. They recently, I, I don't know if it was just recent or if I'm just dumb and I didn't know, but they started selling the STLs to their terrain sets that they were casting in resin. And they've oh, always been one of the first groups to jump up and support us and sponsor us. Um, and there's there's many others. Uh, Multiverse Gaming Terrain, they were very awesome. They've sponsored us in the past. We have a whole table worth of their terrain, their Forges of Prometheus. Uh, Conversion World, they are awesome. If you haven't seen them, check out their bits. I oh, yeah, Conversion. I have a ton of their bits on my stuff. My Blood Angels for 30K, mm -hmm. they've got some amazing bits for those. Do you have those spears? Oh, yeah, I bought like 30 of oh. them. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what happened with me when when uh, when I first found his stuff, I bought a few things, and then I went back and I bought like I think I have forty or fifty different weapons now, and I have no idea what I'm going to use five halberds or you know six lances for. But I I they were just too good to pass up. That's uh, uh, that's the truth. And I'm sorry, I kind of got a little sidetracked there, but no. As far as keeping things fun, I try to use the events as an excuse to build the terrain that I imagine in my head. Um, I think it's very much like a lot of GMs at D&D. &D. You have these stories, narratives, and, and maybe even if it's just like a single plot hook that, you know, something you, that sticks with you. And you're like, you know, I really want to do that. I really and then you just figure out a way to make it work. And that's exactly what I've been doing. I have an idea of you know, this is maybe the type of mission that I want to run. What would be the best table to run it on that I already have? And then you know, what would be a good table to build for? I know that one thing uh, I mentioned on here earlier, uh, I don't have any ice-themed terrain. Similarly, I don't have any lava-themed terrain. 
So uh, those are both on my short list of custom terrain designs that I want to do. Uh, I've done a lot of the you know, urban industrial spires and, and sprawls. We've got the, the battlefield type stuff. We've got the, the desert, you know, semi-industrial, not super high gothic and super far future some terrain that you've sent you pictures of. Um, and again, everything kind of all over the place in between. Um, yeah, terrain is really what gets me out of the, out of bed every day. Terrain and nights. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I think that you know, since since we you mentioned you know saying nights is a, it's kind of a dangerous you know uh, pre, uh, presage to doom and and you know late <laughs> nights. Um, perhaps. Uh, perhaps that's the point where we should wrap this up. This has been an amazing uh, discussion on on narrative play organizing and and some of the things that make it special. I've certainly walked away with a couple new ideas, and uh, I think that your passion for it is palpable. I really appreciate it, David, that you took the time to to talk to me about this tonight. And I'll uh, I'll let you know when this goes live, and we can we can uh, sp spread the love. I guess you could say. <laughs> Well, Chris, again, I really appreciate you sending the invite. I appreciate you letting me come on here to talk. Um, if you know, if you ever want to have me back on, if anybody online that hears this has questions about running events or you know terrain, anything like that, I I'm a firm believer. Even though I I, I have my own painting studio, uh, I would much rather teach somebody how to achieve what they're looking for than to hold their hand and do it for them. Um, again, just spreading that hobby love, spreading that knowledge so that you know, we keep this hobby going and get it greater every year. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. And definitely, I think we need to have more discussions like this on, on the show sometime, whether it's you or Zach or any of the other organizers. But uh, for people who are interested in narrative gaming and wondering, you know, how do we get started or things like that, that might be a great next topic to cover. But yeah, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. Thank you again uh, for your time tonight. And I, I truly hope that Adepticon is a great success for you. And yeah, you I, and me both. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing the pictures as they come in. Uh, but uh, yeah, let's go ahead and wrap this up. And uh, definitely we'll stay in touch and, and talk events and narrative gaming in the future. With that, we conclude Episode 9 of the Chief Librarian Podcast. A big thank you once again to David and also to all of the wonderful theory crafters all over the internet who love diving into 40k mysteries and giving me plenty of material to go over. I wish there was more time to, to go over it. and There will likely be some more episodes down the road that will be dedicated to this. Now, so far as Episode 10, I have a little bit of content in mind for you guys. Like I said, I have been going over and reading a lot since my hobby area is not set up. So one of the things that I picked up was the entire Dawn of Fire series, which is kind of like the Indomitus 
Crusade Horus Heresy series, for lack of a better comparison. I have some thoughts on the series, some thoughts on some of the lore drops and dumps and things that go on with that, and I can't wait to dig into that a little bit. And I think by the time we get to the third one, to wolf time, I may time that to go along with a why I love space wolves. So keep an ear out for that. I apologize for any audio nastiness on this one. Generally speaking, I try to keep a tight lock on that, try and edit it out when I can. I ended up getting sick again partway through the recording of this episode, and I figured it was better to send out something imperfect than wait till it was perfect and have it never go out. So, my apologies there. And with that in mind, with that little teaser, I hope to see some of you at the LVO, and I hope that everybody is able to travel well, be safe, and hobby happily. Cheers. Hey, you. Yes, you. Right there. You are listening to the Frontline Gaming Network. So what does that mean? That means that you have access to a bunch of different and interesting shows. Right now, I'm listening to a lot of Signals from the Frontline because who has time nowadays to follow on your own and get all of the latest news in the gaming hobby? It is streamed every Wednesday, and I never catch it for the stream, but I do catch it later. I especially enjoy Kicker's commentary. He is 40k Hype Man USA, and I challenge anyone, I dare you, to try and prove me wrong or to upstage the hype that is Kicker Kalosny. So, with my recommendation in hand, go and listen to Signals from the Frontline on the Frontline Gaming Network. I am Chris Morgan, and you are listening to a Creative Commons licensed podcast. Some rights reserved.